Deer and fleetest toes can ever outbox the fox.
blood stains. Yes. Let's go. <laughs> I think we all do. We're back. Everybody show your armpits. Yes. <laughs> Enjoy them. Oh, my God. And we What's got up, guys? We're back. We made it another month. We're all alive. That's what. Oh. Right? Yeah, baby. It is June and it's Cinemania 3. And let me explain to anybody who's new to the show how it works. Basically, we got four stooges up here and we got five films a month. Every month we rank five films. We're going to go to the spinning wheel of Doth, as it's called. That spinning wheel of Doth, which means knowledge, is going to select for us which film is up for discussion. Then we are going to reveal our personal rankings on that film. And we're going to have a 15-minute limit to have a film discussion roundtable type discussion. 15 minutes on the clock, and then we're on to the next one. So we got five films to rank, and at the end we will tally up the points to decide who is this month's champion. First, let me introduce you guys to our team. Mr. Aaron Mann is a film student, a model, and an actor. Aaron, what's up, bro? Howdy, howdy. Aaron checking in here. Guys, I'm super excited about this month. Um, it very well could have been my favorite so far. Um, some of my favorite films that I'm definitely taking away. Uh, just some greater knowledge I'm going to be sharing with others. Fantastico. We got Paul Jackson. He's a former radio host, an actor, and an improv artist. Paul, what's going on? Oh, gentlemen, it's so great to be here. I, I have to tell you, I think, I think I'm... I'm pretty sure my wife is away for the weekend. Um, I know this uh, because uh, there's a stock pot of delicious stew on my stove. There's some ice cream in the freezer that I generally don't buy for myself. And somebody, somebody unlocked my porn control. So, sweetheart, I love you. Get home soon. And we have, that was amazing, Paul. We also have Chris Scavira, who is this podcast's uh, technical producer. He has a degree in film and TV. He is a dungeon master and a writer. Chris, say hello. Hi, everybody. My name's Chris. As you can see, I'm running everything right now. So forgive me if I don't get everything on my own because I didn't prioritize myself. But you know what? Uh, I am very excited for this month. I had a grand old time watching these films and enjoying them to the fullest, I think. Uh, I'm going to kick it back over to Yoshi because, Yoshi, we didn't get a chance to see your title card. So while you're doing that, I'm going to kick back to you. All righty. Hello. I'm Yoshi, everybody, and I am a Pilates instructor. I was born <laughs> in New Zealand, and uh, I have a degree in um, being a 30-year-old male. Chris, that's an inside joke. <laughs> um, okay. So um, before we begin, um, let's reveal and crown the champion of May, last month's champion, Chris. Yeah, last month's champion will be revealed right now.
<laughs> oh my god. Cries and whispers oh was last month's <laughs> champion. Fantastic uh, champion. Oh my god. Yep. Uh, yeah, incredible movie. Um, I should also mention that after our discussions today, we will be doing a draft to find out which five films we'll be watching next month. Now that that's all taken care of, shall we begin? We shall. Yes. Let's do it. Let's spin the wheel to figure out which of these we're going to do. And I... Shabam. All right, boys. What's going first? Ooh. <laughs> I don't see anything. Yeah, we can Being see. John Well, you know what, folks? Sometimes you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. And uh, I'm going to have to go back and edit that. But the first film is Being John Malkovich. Okay, uh, so Being let's... John Malkovich. Amazing. Okay. okay. So transition to that right now. Being John Malkovich, 1999, Spike Jones, USA. Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. That scene. That scene, man. That scene. All right. All right. Shall we? Yeah. Ready? Three, two, one. Boom. Oh! oh! Paul, we can't see. Right. Well, is that a five? That's a five, five. from Paul. Wow. Oh, man. Wow. Couple ones, go. a five and a two. Wow. Incredible. Boop, boop, Shit. Boop. Oh, wait. Let me get another one. Shazam. A one. Is that the hymn symbol? This? Yeah. I don't oh. know what hymn is, but uh, <laughs> the band heart. hymn that Bam Margera was a part of in the early 2000s. Oh, Bam Margera. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, Paul, a five. I got to say, I'm a little surprised. I really thought for some reason or another that you were going to love this film. Um, but otherwise, it's looking like this might be the champion of the month already unless, yeah, I'm trying to do the math in my head of how, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But um, two ones, a two and a five. Does anybody uh, have the motivation to, to take us away? I mean, I do. Go for it, Chris. So I really think that this movie, uh, it's funny, it's, it's, it's deep, uh, and not just on like, the surface levels. I think this movie definitely covers a lot of ground in a very humorous way. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get into the synopsis really quick. Basically, they find a, a portal that leads into the mind of John Malkovich. And initially, it is just, you know, you're taken for a ride. You get to experience everything that actor John Malkovich experiences in a day. But then we learn that if you have enough willpower, if you have enough control over your body, you can actually control John Malkovich and be John Malkovich, like the movie says. Um, it deals a lot with body dysmorphia, performance art, uh, not being destined to be who you are. And it dealt, it, for me, it dealt with the, 
the uh, like the deep flaws in the Hollywood and entertainment system. Interesting. Elaborate on on that part. What do you mean by that? So, for example, the guy I cannot remember his name for the life of me, but John Cusack's character is this amazing puppeteer. He is sorry. Go ahead. Was it Chester or Chaz probably? Yeah, Chester for some reason. Uh, Craig. 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 He had he had a nerdy white dude name. That's all I remember. Uh, but yeah, so that it literally he was an amazing puppeteer to the point where he could do micro movements and this amazing thing, and he wasn't appreciated. The moment he became John Malkovich, the world suddenly recognized his genius. So and like, so, yep. You so, oh good. So do you think that it's it's a that's a great way to start the conversation off because I was thinking about this as well because Craig mentions you know being in control of Malkovich as wearing an expensive suit um, and and that's how he is able to find success in his art and obtain the woman of his desires. Now I guess the sort of question of the film could be could Craig have concocted his own expensive suit the entire time? Was it Malkovich that made his success possible? Because if you remember in that little mini documentary showing the puppeteering career mm-hmm. of John Malkovich, um, he started in like small clubs and started from the bottom. Now we're here. And so I guess the question is, you know, could, he, could, could Craig have made his own expensive suit by taking care of his body, eating good, not drinking so much, and having the confidence that he is the best puppeteer and he could be the one to make this, to make puppeteering a mainstream, uh, you know, whatever you would call it, performance art. Yeah. Um, or did he need to be in someone of Malkovich's stature with the money and all that for, for it to work? I honestly think that he needed to be John Malkovich. Like there are, I mean, and you, we all can speak to this because we all live live in Los Angeles. We all know people who are immeasurably talented that are simply just waiting for their opportunity to do what they do best. Like there really is like, it's just, yeah, but I think, I think you just kind of nailed it on the head and proved my point for me because there's so many people waiting. They're just waiting, thinking it's just going to happen, and and their failure to succeed is due to psychological limitations they're placing on themselves. But if you could live in the in a day in someone else's shoes, then suddenly you have this newfound belief because you know you're not stuck in this identity that you have limited yourself in. We only play this one character, and we limit ourselves to playing one character throughout life. And it turns out that that might actually be limiting you in a, in a huge way because mm. we believe that we are one thing. And, and what Craig was obsessed with was puppeteering all these other identities because it allowed him to sort of explore other ways of thinking and living. Yeah. Aaron, you had this ranked number two, so uh, you also probably Yeah, thought- I was going to jump in right there. Go for it. Sorry. Um, but yeah, I agree with you completely. I think this is more a limitation on self. Um, the idea that you have all the talent to, in the world, but you don't believe in yourself. You know, you're stuck in your dead end job or you're in your shitty apartment. And like, you know, it's almost like a fear of really breaking free to do everything you can to be the best version of yourself. Um, 
This was super interesting because he was the puppeteer and he just wanted to be like he could embody another person. So when he got to be John Malkovich, it was like, I am the puppeteer again. I'm in someone else's skin and now I'm free to be who I truly am and I can express myself through someone else's vessel. But the crazy thing is if he would just express himself in his own vessel, he would make it because you can't, he would not be denied. He would be a power, uh, a source of light in his own, in his own life. But he was so insecure, you know, he didn't want to speak up on his relationship. He didn't want to speak up in his job. He was just a very sad human being that kind of just took the back seat. And yeah, he went out and did some street performing, but there was just this hesitance. Like, did he really believe in himself or, you know, was he just kind of wafting around with this talent what was your favorite scene aaron oh man stick out uh favorite scene ah i mean yeah i'm tempted to say the one you guys previewed you know? <laughs> I mean, it was because there was I, so much anticipation it's like okay wait what is going to happen when john goes in john's consciousness and then it was just perfect it was like you know John, 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 you know, it was like, he was everywhere and all the characters were like, even the menu was just Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. Yeah. Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. It was just so great. And when he gets out of his consciousness, he's just infuriated. Like, how dare you? This is mine. This is my life. It's my head. It's my head. Yeah, that was. I, just I don't know if that. I've laughed that hard. That's that one of the. You can ask Chris. We watched it together. I haven't. La- I was choking laughing. It was like really, really funny to me. I thought this film was absolute genius. Charlie Kaufman, I think, is one of the best writers in Hollywood. And the combination of him and Spike Jones. It's interesting. We have Topsy Turvy as another film in discussion, which is about a great duo of history, a great create creative collaboration in history. I think that someone should one day make a movie about the collaboration of Spike Jones and Charlie Coffin, because I don't know if any other duo could have made a film like this, because they both have the sort of niche to, to do something like that. Paul, was this film disliked by you being it ranked uh, number five, or did it just happen to fall at number five uh, because of your love for the other films? Uh, more of the former. And obviously, um, you know, I, I think given the, a universal appreciation for this movie, I was actually almost intimidated to start ranking it one or two and just, but I, when I, when I saw it in 99, I, uh, I, I couldn't remember a lot of parts of this and I don't know if I was laughing when I came out of it, but I did appreciate the first half hour and I don't remember why. And of course, viewing it again, it was Abelard and Eloise just, Oh my God, that, that isn't an, the most excruciating love story in the world. I don't know what is. In fact, it is the most. And the Which one? Over, uh, John uh, um, Craig doing his uh, puppet with Abelard and Heloise at the beginning was just, uh-huh. it's so monumentally emotional. And so what I thought as a viewer is that was informing me as to this broken romantic. And that's what he's seeking, just this lovelorn artist. So I'm on board and I'm on board with the oversight. Emily Dickinson, I'm on board with the puppeteer Envy, and I go, this is fantastic. 
And then it just started to unfurl before my eyes. And I realized, no, at some point I stopped. I checked out of this movie. I'm sure that the audience I was with that night at the theater was just laughing uproariously. And I just remember retreating into my mind going, oh, my God, Charlie Kaufman uh, is killing careers. And right now uh, I called Brie Larson and Jesse Plemons representation because um, I know they've got a movie coming out this year scripted, I believe, and directed by Charlie Kaufman. Uh, I'll have to I'll have to curse her over to find it. I'm not dying here or I'm thinking of ending things. And I got to tell you guys, uh, on, a, on a top level, I, I actually, I stalled the movie, I paused it, and I went looking for John Cusack's career. After this movie, he did High Fidelity, which he probably grimaced as he read the script and said, oh my God, this seems eerily similar to Say Anything, because thereafter, it was straight to DVD land for John Cusack, an what? actor whom I love from Chicago. He hasn't been in anything redeemable. Smile the exception. I thought his performance as Brian Wilson was perfect, absolutely perfect as the adult, uh, you know, force behind Beach Boys. And Cameron Diaz, the summary of her Oscar red carpet was, how did you feel dirtying up for this role? And do you think it will impact your career henceforth or something to that effect? And she was like, oh, it's not going to. And literally, poor Cameron, whom I adore just gone. That's it. We never saw her again. And you could say the same thing. And it's funny. I started to develop this. Wait, you're I saying think. Cameron Diaz didn't have a career after this film? Probably not. No. Nah, come on. She come was on, so no. young. Her whole career was after oh, this please. film. Oh, no, no. The, the, her career, the something about Mary was before this, uh, the, uh, the, the Jim Carrey movies, but, but see invoking Jim Carrey, eternal, <laughs> eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. That was the end of Jim Carrey. Nicholas Cage what? adaptation. That was oh, the I end don't of, even know you anymore, that, man. That was what the, the end of Nicholas Cage after adaptation. No, believe me. Trust me. I'm, I'm telling you, this this so did you, thing, I, I, I and it was funny because Cameron Diaz was so pleasantly neutral throughout this whole thing. And what I couldn't understand is I'm watching John Cusack and I'm going, is there another actor who can portray uh, a better version of a of a likable pathetic? And I said, there's got to be a ton of them. I can't think of anybody right now. And watching it, I literally was getting angry at him because I couldn't understand why he was suddenly smitten with Captain Keener, who was so brilliant in this movie. Malkovich was brilliant in this movie. So but brilliant. again, this was a puzzle box. This was a puzzle box where the picture on the box was better than the assembled puzzle oh on, my my, God. On, my, on my table. And I could not. I couldn't. Paul. I tried watching it a second time. I could not. <laughs> Bro, okay. Well, you know what? I'm, 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 I'm. I don't know if I'll be more shocked in the in the more in the rest of every month that we do the show from now on. I don't know if I'll ever be as shocked as I am right now. I, I really thought that this was like your personal cup of tea. The, the, did you have no appreciation for the genre bending? I, have you ever been able to laugh that hard and also be uncomfortable where it turns in where Craig suddenly turns into a fucking potential serial killer and locks up Cameron Diaz. I thought John Cusack and Cameron Diaz were at their best. In fact, I found newfound appreciations for them. Of course, Malkovich takes the cake. Uh, I've never seen him better either. I've never seen all four of these actor be actors better. Were you not cracking up at the seven and a half floor orientation video? Was that not the funniest thing you've ever seen? Oh, I mean, that, that's it. That, but that was the first half hour of the movie. Okay, that's so, what I wanted. That yeah. was the first. That was brilliant. So then you don't like how they turned it into a dramatic piece. No, it, it, after that, I needed a little more. Uh, and it's weird because the word that comes to mind is absurdity. What happened is suddenly I think 
I, again, I, I'm the guy who loves to imagine what the onset discussion was like somewhere along the line because Kaufman was not directing it. I just assumed John Cusack went exploring a little bit. And because of we all know how films get shot, they're out of sequence. And he just didn't sync up. He didn't make himself likable to me at about the 40 minute mark. His immediate interest in Catherine Keener is probably the interest any adult male would have. She's, you know, pretty hot at 40. And uh, but it wasn't enough to get me on board with him. At that point, I wanted him crushed. Um, I just wanted him off the screen. It wasn't I, I I was like, look, your sad sack life living with a monkey and your wife in this rundown apartment. I understand the points you guys made. Those I truly understand. But it did require uh, this, you know, and we'll, we'll invoke deus ex machina later. I mean, this, this Malkovich moment was so necessary for him to get to literally shake his bedrock and get him to a point where like, oh, I can go do something. And then suddenly it turns criminal, like, holy Jesus Christ, the guy who, was, who, was, who had established a puppet show at the top of this movie with one of, like I said, one of the most heart-rending love stories of all time you've got me i'm on board with you i'm on board with your puppeteer envy i mean to the points you guys made about actors in this town we maybe secretly privately covet these you know these people and their talent oh i want that i want that but you exactly said the point yoshi is like they have the they put these psychological they put these psychological limitations on and i'll go a step further yoshi in the fraction of film time that you opened this show with portraying john malkovich I wanted you to be in that fucking role. Right, I'm right, serious. Man, I know. I'm not, I, and no, trust right. me, I'm not blowing Broken smoke. Ego. <laughs> okay, look, we're under five minutes, guys, so we got to get to it. Um, but how, wait, wait, wait. How great was that twist, though? Like where you're so uncomfortable about Cameron Diaz walking in to that relationship, like the office relationship, where you're like, oh, shit. He, she's now going to see that they have this thing. Like, isn't she going to be crushed? Okay, and quick. Now, quick she, round. Quick, sorry to cut you off just because it was the time. Quickly, all four, all four of us, let's go. What do we think that was all about? The Cameron Diaz, do you like, you know, what was that whole situation, that love triangle there? I'll start just even of his impotence. To say what? Representation of his impotence. Whose? Whose impotence? Craig's. Yeah. Okay. Gender assignment, sexuality. I mean, it didn't have anything to do with it. For me, it was like, Malkovich was like the hermaphrod, the hermaphrodite, meaning like the fully actualized, individualized self who has embraced their masculine and feminine energy completely. So in this weird world, that's why she was addicted to it. Not because she was not like secretly gay or anything like that. She felt like what it could be like to be her feminine self with his masculine self all together as one, as one full human being. That's where the addiction lies for her. And now what's interesting, and then and one of you guys take this over real quick, is Maxine lives her whole life as a hedonist. And, and all she cares about, she, she avoids real human interactions. She just wants lust and power. And then once she finally gets those things, and, and she has all the fame and the power, she's no longer into it. She has a baby, and suddenly, how oh, irony is, all along, it's real human action, interaction that she really wanted. And, and the funny thing is that we, we see Craig as this puppeteer, this real artist. That's how he thinks about himself, a real artist. Turns out he's full of shit. 
He's been full of shit this whole time. He's been telling himself a false narrative because at the end of the day, when he leaves Malkovich's body, he could have been like, fuck it. I have what I need to be a puppeteer. I'm going to go do it on my own. But instead, he chooses to go to hell. That's the that's the gates to hell right there. And he goes back into the portal and he's the daughter of the two women that he loves the most in the world. And he has to spend eternity watching these two women love each other and not him because he cared more at the end of the day about what people thought about him than the art. Aaron, take us home. Uh, I mean, I think you hit it on the head here. But yeah, this is uh, this film is all about wanting to be in someone else's skin, you know, not being comfortable where you're at, like just constantly seeing the pitfalls of your own situation, the the cards that were dealt to your life and being like, well, what if I could just have this or maybe this love would define me. Maybe this talent would define me. If I just had this opportunity, like to me, this movie is all about that reach of like, you know, they just have that depressing line of people that just want to be Malkovich for just 15 minutes. Right. And they just come back and they come back because that little glimpse of being something like that, that apex of a human being, you know, the famous person, that's like all they're living for, essentially, because they can't get their own life together. And that's what this movie's all about to me. It's it's looking external instead of saying, I can change my life however I want. Okay, I just got a note from uh, Cameron Diaz's representation. She just wanted, she's sorry she couldn't be here. And she wants to thank you guys. She's at home polishing her Oscar that she got for Gangs of New York. Oh, After my this, God. right? After this. <laughs> After this. So point proven, their career skyrocketed. Not oh, just, just like crushed it. She crushed it. Paul, I'm seriously so happy because now I don't know who you are, and I get to discover who you are. Chris, so quick, quick aside. You're gonna be Paul Jackson. Jackson. Open oh. that door. Yeah, god. being Paul Jackson. What a being fucking Paul movie Jackson. that would be. Oh god. Uh, so we have a, a message from chat. Uh, they want to get some extra snaps for Paul because they felt that emotion. They, oh, as in they agreed with Paul. Yes, they did. All right, Paul, the audience is with you so far. Let's okay, go. Okay. Right. We like audience on our side. You know. Yes, indeed. Let us transition <laughs> to the next film. Well, yeah. should we? Yeah. Are you going to graph us up or are you going to wait for the next one? I'm going to wait for the next one just so okay. we have a little bit more of information. For sure. Okie doke. Uh, so next on the wheel. That was fun, guys. Paul, you brought it. That was good. Boop. 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 And go. Hey. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Bam. We'll see you guys in a few seconds. The Court Jester, 1955. Norman Panama and Melvin Frank. The United States. Peels of lizards, ears of swine, chicken gizzards soaked in brine on your feet. Be not afraid, you're the greatest with the blade. All right, we're back. Court Jester. What's the synopsis, Christopher? The synopsis? I did not have it up. 
<laughs> because we did not do that it last time. It's basically a jester <laughs> who, uh, who exposes a king for being not the true heir to the throne. And like a true jester, sort of uh, 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 shows, reveals. <laughs> you got to give us the real fucking one, dude. I don't know what it's about. Hold on. Uh, so Hawkins is a jester who, under the guise of a jester who is coming into court to perform for the king, Giacomo, takes over his role uh, to reinstate the next heir of the king, who is a small child who is sworn to the throne by a sacred birthmark on their posterior. Uh, within this, he is actually beguiled by the local witch uh, into uh, falling in love with the princess who is set to marry another. Uh, under, the, uh, under hypnosis, he fights for her honor, and then chaos ensues. Are we ready? We are. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Three, two, one. Ooh! Ooh, solid rankings. Somewhere in the middle there. Very nice. Two threes, a two, and a four. And it looks like that's going to end up somewhere in the middle. Yes. <laughs> Who would like to start us off? Yeah, I almost threw this uh, ahead of one other. But yeah, I guess this was sort of like 3B. My 4 is more like a 3B, but um, I, I really enjoyed this. And, you know, you asked the question earlier, Yosh, because um, we, we almost said it seems like we have these two parameters. Like, does it fall where it falls because these there's three other films ahead of it? it that's kind of where it is for me. I, I I knew this was going to be a romp. That's what I expected uh, walking in, and, and I got more than I than I bargained. It was great. I watched uh, people have a lot of fun, and it takes you back to a time because it even took me back to what we've discussed before. You know, just about singing in the rain and our enjoyment of a musical, and um, I loved it here. Uh, just every moment, I started asking myself a question like, "How is he going to be able to fight for the honor?" Oh, a little little lightning bolt hits a. It's uh, uh, some knight's armor, and oh, now he becomes uh, Magneto. And I just went, oh, this is brilliant. This is just great. How is the, you know, how is Angela Lansbury's character going to uh, beguile him? Oh, here comes the uh, introduce the witch and a couple of spells. How will he be able to stand uh, his swordsmanship up to uh, his rival? Oh, great, another spell is cast. And I just loved, uh, I really, really, really loved this movie. I just loved Basil Rathbone sort of in the sunset of his life. Um, who, interestingly enough, I remember he was in World War I, but I had to do a little deep dive, but he was the sword play expert back in the day. He's the one who taught Errol Flynn and Tyrone Powers and uh, the sword play and Mark of Zorro and any of those you know, great Errol Flynn movies is directly attributable to him. And in here, it, again, I just always love the moments where you're like, you're watching somebody who was like in his early 60s, he still got it, but he realizes it's perfect that I don't have it like the way I used to have it because I'm fighting Danny Kay and he's going to win. Let's just have some fun. Um, the storyline's great. You're waiting for the happy ending. Can't get there fast enough. Um, and it's just uh, fun, fun, fun all the way along. The pellet with the poison and the vessel with the pestle. That oh, from the past, the brew that is oh. true. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was... What the... <laughs> I, I, it's, why I feel like I should make it 3 a.m. Like, oh, I hate myself. But you no, know, what's really strange for me is that like, I, it's like I have so much more to say about all the other films on our list. 
But I rank this one too because that's how much I enjoyed it. I, my argument for it is sort of similar to what Aaron's was for Singing in the Rain. I would say even more so for me personally. I was so impressed by the balancing act um, and the um, you know the talent involved all the way around. Um, what's our What's our main guy's name? Danny Kay. Fucking uh, Hubert. Yeah, Dan- Danny Kay is the actor, though. Yeah, Danny Kay. Yeah, playing Hubert. Yeah, yeah. I had never heard of him before. Um, he's a comedy genius. I mean, the scene where he's playing the old man, um, oh. uh, the the whole snapping thing uh, where he's going back and forth from a fierce uh, swordsman to this jester. Um, I, I just really, I'm really not usually into these types of movies. Uh, 1950s musical. Uh, boy, was it done well. And it doesn't feel, it didn't feel old to me if, the humor was like, yes, maybe slapsticky, but I'm kind of into that stuff. I'm starting to learn. Chris, what are your thoughts? This was the movie that you introduced to the catalog. Uh, how did you first hear about this film? How did it come into your life? So, ironically, this film was brought into my life because of swordplay. There was a gentleman I went to grad school with who was a uh, historical reenactor who very much was into swordplay, very much was into you know, putting on greaves, putting on full armor, and then going at it and, and really getting after people. And I mentioned, like, offhandedly, like, what movie would you recommend? And he goes, The Court Jester. And I said, okay, why? It sounds like a comedy movie. And he goes, watch it, and I'll tell you afterwards. So I watched it back in the day. And apparently, Basil Rathbone, as Paul has illuminated us, was this amazing instructor, this beautiful swordsman, and Danny Kaye didn't care. Danny Kaye was very famously just like, I'm just going to come to set, have a good time, make a film, get paid, get out. Let's do this. Uh, so they're going through their swordplay, and Danny Kaye's not paying attention. So Basil Rathbone slaps him in the face with the bl- like the blank end of his sword, not to like hurt him or anything, but just to, like, hey, like pay attention. Like, do you know who I am? And Danny Kaye, without effort, beats Basil Rathbone. Because Danny Kaye was a, like, nationally ranked fencer when he was in high school. But he just didn't care. He's like, it's a movie. Get over yourself. Sly. Yeah. (laughs) Agreeing to do the film, knowing that, but bringing no attention to himself until that moment arrived. Well, because he didn't want to. He was just like, I'm here to make people laugh, to do funny voices and sing. I don't care about my sword work. I I wonder if they wrote into the script because of that, the whole snapping thing. Because that's sort of like a microcosm of that whole idea is like, he's just this jester. Don't take him seriously. But with the snap of a finger, he'll beat your ass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Aaron, you're the master of musicals. Tell us how this ranked for you. Yeah, there was a lot of pros and cons here. Um, the pros that uh, are obvious is Danny Kaye is just an incredible, talented artist. I mean, dancer, singer extraordinaire um this was really entertaining to watch you know this whole film felt like a a fair like a classic fairy tale to me it almost felt disney-esque you know like a disney cartoon brought to life um so i i I found that fairly interesting um his like uh yosh said his ability to snap literally into new characters was uh just remarkable um you know, when we talk about an actor taking on characteristics of the character you're portraying, 
you know, you need to have that seamless line throughout, you know, that recalls and you just have this deep history of where your character's been and what is going forward and why that influences you in the future. And just having those little things like the snap carry through the whole storyline was just so brilliant. It, added, it just added this richness to the story and what we got to see and view. Um, there were some moments where the film just felt a little clunky, and that's why it got a three to me. Like, it didn't take me away as much as Singing in the Rain did. Um, I don't know. There were just weird moments. Like, at the end of the film, the king is just kind of like, like, this king literally usurped the throne, kill, slaughtered everybody. And at the end, we're all just singing and dancing together. Like, what the fuck? Like, wait a minute. Is someone going to arrest this guy? Like, he's yeah, just in the middle. Not, is that not accurate of our current leaders? I, I guess so. Yeah, we all dance around like, oh, you did the little thing, right? Yeah. You <laughs> drone strike people. Yeah, it's you fine. drone strike people, but you talk elegantly, so you're great. Yeah, we like you. Well, that's, it's, that's, that's, you know, it's funny that you bring that up because that's actually, it's very interesting how times don't really change. <laughs> yeah, I can see actually, yeah, that political line you draw there. Um, so we're, there were things like that that bothered me with the film. Um, many of the characters outside of him and the, the swordsman you guys mentioned, Basil, they felt, they felt a little... Uh, behind the acting caliber, like the true Fox. I forget his name. Um, the, the, the black Fox, the actual black Fox. Yeah. He seemed kind of washed out of the story. Like yeah. That's a good point. Important character. Like almost, almost like I wanted his character to be much greater so that I had an understanding of why he was so great. And they just kind of like, they had so many characters that they threw in that that just took this weird, like, backseat and i'm like wait a minute that would have been great to know more about this robin character in the woods um yeah he just became a yeah I, they used yeah exactly so um you know I, I one other thing i want to touch on real quick is that pill saying that you said the pill the where it, they're trying the to is the vessel with the pestle yeah, that was my favorite scene in the movie because that just sparked this thing in me as an actor and a performer when you want to remember something so bad, you're just like in your head about it. You're like, okay, I'm going to say the lines over and over and over again. And you're like, oh, wait, oh, no. Like you, you tried to grip onto that information so much that you just can't. Like it's, it's almost impossible. Like you are literally bl brain blocking yourself. And I just love that scene because it was just so true. <laughs> Where both of these guys are like, holy, oh my God, okay, I, I got to remember the, the da, 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 or I'm going to die. Wait, was it? And then people keep seeing that, like where the poison's going and then informing, <laughs> informing <laughs> someone and, but the, the poison oh. changing and it's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nobody got it right. And then it just, I oh, no, forget the poison and. You know, da, da, da. Well, then you it know. makes it even better when they like after all of that, when it's like, oh yeah, that that uh, footman took it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, it, it just doesn't mean anything. Magic. Yeah, 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 yeah. The 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 levels and layers of absurdity for me was just endlessly entertaining. Uh, Carl Jung, Carl Jung has a quote: uh, "The jester is the precursor to the savior," mm. and I thought that was very apt to this film. Because essentially what Carl Jung means by that is that the person who's going to, at the end of the day, rise up and save the kingdom 
is someone who was kind of looked upon as a fool the whole time because only the fool is willing to approach life admitting to oneself that they don't know. They don't know how to do this. They don't know what that is. They don't know who this is. They don't know what that is. They're willing to try anything and get to know things because they're the fool and only the fool uh, admits to not knowing. So there's this countless, Carl Jung makes countless uh, analogies to fools over the centuries who, who, who ended up being a savior. So uh, we kind of see that in this film because he, if you think about it, is was just this street performer and now he's the hand to the king because the king is that baby and it looks by all accounts like he's the one who's going to take at, uh, look after the baby with all of his midgets. Mm, little people. Little people. Little people. Sorry. Uh, well, actually, uh, it was kids, right, that were dressed in makeup, right? Well, yeah, in real life, but I think little people. I think it was little people and when we could see, but then when we needed a bunch of extras, it was little kids. I thought it was kids in makeup for a lot of them. And I was just, that actually cracked me up because I was like, is that, is that a kid with like old man makeup on? Yes. (laughs) Uh, The chat brings up a good point. Historically, jesters were the only people who could mock the king. Kind of like now where like, unfortunately the current situation we're in, but like, comedians are usually the people who are lambasted for saying the wrong thing, but they're usually the ones who are are speaking some semblance of truth, whether it's hard to believe or raw or uh, offensive, but there are semblances of truth in that. Yeah. Who said that? Uh, That would be uh, iron on tap. Iron on tap. You're yeah. Thank you for that. That's, that's um, absolutely true. And, and I think that we're really starting to get at the crux of why some film that could on the surface seem like a simple musical actually have a real poignant idea behind it. And that is the importance of comedy in times where truth is not really spoken out of fear. Mm. Saw that we see that in a tyrannical kingdom, such as this movie presents to us. And we're seeing that now imagine, imagine right now with how, how things are so politically correct and, and you have to be very careful with what you say. Imagine this world without the comedians who are bringing these things to light because they're not afraid to use their platforms to bring such things to light. So that's a great point, Iron Tap. We would be nowhere without you. Thank you for speaking up. Yes. <laughs> I think right. we've uh, sort of hit this one on the head. Does anyone else have any last comments? No? Yes. Let's, mo- let's move on. All right. Let's, let's kill it. All right. So let's move on. You. So let's get a, let's get a graph to uh, keep uh, keep our audience um, sure ourselves up to date with where things are. You've got a really nice lens flare going on right now, Aaron. Oh, I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> lens flare. I got a poster board over here, like trying to block sun. All right, bam. So I this is very small. Uh, I was only able to get the first one because I didn't catch what uh, Aaron voted for uh, the being John Malkovich. Two. Two. Thank you, Yoshi. Thank you, Yoshi. So that brings uh, being John Malkovich up to 14, 15 points. So right now, being John Malkovich is in the lead. Not by much. Court Jester is just a few points behind. That's correct. It's still anyone's game, boys. Anyone. All right. 
Let us go back briefly to the wheel. The wheel of death. The wheel of death. <laughs> Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> Hannibal Lecter. I love it. All right. Oh, boy. Shall I place this one? <laughs> oh, I want to know. We have to watch the video place. first. Yeah. All right, here we go. Run, Lola, Run, 1998. Tom Tickler, Germany. Lola Rent. Chris, uh, what was this movie about? Run, Lola, run. I deleted it off the synopsis. I'll just do it right now. Uh, so Lola, Run, Lola, run is a story of Lola and her uh, boyfriend, Mani. Mani gets into some bad business with some bad folks, uh, stealing some, cro- uh, some cars across the border in Germany. He's then tasked with delivering the money from the cars to his boss, whose name I cannot remember, but he's a bad boy. Uh, Manny, fearing that all his life is lost, calls Lola and says, hey, we need to get 100,000 marks. And so Lola runs to the next thing that she knows, which is her father, who happens to be a manager of the bank. And then the story picks up there as Lola runs through uh, multiple different ways, multiple different (laughs) timelines, maybe. Uh, and yeah, trying to get those hundred thousand Deutschmarks. You're definitely a, a dungeon master, man, because your ability to recall a synopsis out of thin air like that was very impressive. Shall we reveal our rankings? Canal. Three, two, one. Wow, you called it, Yoshi. <laughs> there is quite different opinions on this film. Don't okay. resist. Don't resist. All right, so five, one, four, three. Wow. Wow, wow, wow is right. <laughs> okay, so clearly we are all somewhat divided on this film. We have a, a, a one, a five, a three, and a four. Um, I will start just with this, and then someone please take over. Uh, it opened up with my favorite T.S. Eliot quote. We shall not cease from exploration, and at the end of all our exploring will be, arri- will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Love that quote. And I knew going into this that Aaron was the one introducing this film to the catalog, and I knew that he already thought very highly of it. I sat back, I saw that quote, and I buckled myself up, and I was like, yes, this is going to be sick. And it was the most piece of trash film I've ever fucking seen. Now, I might be exaggerating, but it's definitely the worst film that's ever been a part of this fucking show. It was not cinema. It was an uh, he lies. It was a postmodern experiment of will versus determination. And I will use the same argument that Aaron used last month with El Topo. It could have been done so much better. No. <laughs> 
Really? Okay. Um, wow. I, I'm so shocked. I mean, to me, this film just has so me. many, so me many elements. Oh Help my God. Where do I start? Where do I start? Okay. For me, the integration of the, the animation to the beginning of each sequence, you know, because there was th three sequences of this film where different timelines took place where, I mean, I guess we're spoiler alert. You know, They've where she if you're watching yeah. this, sh if you're watching this show, <laughs> it's spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert for right. this show. I mean, OK, so she dies, she comes back and then we get the animation scene to take over again. And to me, integrating this animation scene to this film just added this element that I hadn't really ever seen before, which was so uh, exciting. It almost felt like a video game to me. Like I was jumping into this game, like, oh, game over? Here, you get another life. Try it different. And I was like, ooh, I got to try the puzzle again differently. But now I'm in, you know, I'm in the movie. So, okay, she uh, passes the dog. Now she's moving quicker. Or she stumbles down the stairs. Okay, shit, she moves slower. What is that going to do to every timeline? So I love this, like, butterfly effect where every single thing affects the next thing. In fact, it affects everyone's lives that she bumps into. Anybody she comes in contact with at that timing could completely shift their outcome in their lives, whether it was the woman that won the lotto or she bumped into some woman and she ended up getting in a car accident and dying. You know, like um, Right, so the smallest events can have enormous consequences. Is basically yeah, or gr great, yeah, great consequences. You know, someone won the lotto. Um, I just love the cinematography. I mean, the the film opens up with this helicopter shot um, that's over the town, and then we like get dropped in, and then it goes through the window. I mean, cinematically, this is just butter. I mean, it is so. I mean, I could break down all kinds of things at the beginning of the film. Run, Lola, run. They actually had 300 extras that they brought on set. They did a overhead shot and they had every uh, extra lineup in those letters and they shot them individually to conform to that one opening um, uh, title shot, which I thought was fascinating. I, I like, uh, I'm Yoshi. I'm so surprised you hated this film. All the spirals in the film, yeah. all the Fibonacci. You like, can throw fucking a thousand spirals at me. I still need a movie to be behind it. I still <laughs> Fibonacci. Give me the Fibonacci. Right. Fibonacci's great. I'll go. I'll go read about it. But like, dude, <laughs> like Fibonacci, I don't give a shit. I need to all the elements. Three that plus it, five is eight. Sorry, go ahead. Your I'm life sure. is spiraling. Yeah, sure. I'm starting to really understand maybe the difference of of how you and I go into a watching a film, Aaron. I feel like. Maybe I'm really interested in the story and you're really interested in like achievement, technical, yeah. technical achievement, because like this movie. Yeah, sure. Like you, that's that was your first defense in it. It was was illustrating the, the technical achievements to it. And yeah, that's all good. But for me, it's like one of the greatest sins of cinema that you can do is present dramatic obstacles for characters that the audience don't know. I don't know who these people are. It's just a chick and a boyfriend. I don't care about them. Why, do, why am I supposed to care about them? There's no backstory. They don't even seem human to me. It's a video game. I'm watching a video game. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a thriller video game. But for me, this is like such a great thriller. Like this is the ticking time bomb that we want to see. This is the anticipation of, wow, what is going to happen next? And why are all these connecting? And 
did you guys notice little things like the guy in the ambulance on the last uh, life take she did? The guy in the ambulance the was cop, the right? cop. Yeah. So adding those little elements, just like your little, dad. No, it was the cop. It was the cop. And basically he had heart pains. You could see him grabbing his chest, kind of like showing little elements like, hey, this will be coming later. Just little clues. Um, I just thought the acting was great. I mean, they. they, The acting was good. I will say that. They shot that phone booth scene over two days, you know, where they're like talking back and forth at each other. And like, I just thought the acting was there, man. Like I it felt was. it. The, it was. The situation, the circumstance. Um, I mean, right. I, I could go on and on. Yeah, Aaron and, hear I, Aaron, Aaron and I could mind. fence all day. Uh, Chris, <laughs> Paul, one of you jump in. You, you guys have this kind of more in the middle of your list. So, so tell us your opinions. Help us figure this out. Yeah, I think uh, to uh, I watching it i under i perhaps anticipated a little bit of what how aaron might deconstruct this i this for me is something you'd show to a film student audience and you'd say now before i show this i as the professor do any of you in this room raise your hand in this room if you think you can uh, establish various set pieces outdoors within a 10 block radius of blah, 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 blah. And, he, and I could probably list a whole bunch of things and everybody would be like, oh, my God, there's no way I can do that, even if I got all the permits. So what, you know, Thomas, what is this, uh, Tickver, you know, does here is he show like using a device that we have all seen before. We've maybe seen this, you know, my generation has seen this in the Twilight Zone. We have since seen this trope play out in film and in television. Um, but you guys hit it on the head. What, what, what stood out is if you've never seen uh, Moritz uh, uh, with Bleepchild, uh, his uh, the Bader Meinhof movie, well worth it. He is an extraordinary actor. Her boyfriend Monty, he is extraordinary. He looks familiar to me. I couldn't place it though. Yeah, I can't think of the movie's name, but he is exceptional in that movie. Also very good here, but exceptional in that movie. But he has great subtlety. But it's great. This is like exactly the film student uh, movie. It's like here are my set pieces. Great. I'm just going to redo this three or four times. Um, got it. But you truly need good actors to pull off the subtlety. And I thought the supporting performances were great. So that's why I was, you know, for me. But this was, you know, talk about swashbuckling. This was Court Jester and Run Lola Run swashbuckling for three and four. It just moved up because, again, if I'm, if you know, the four of us collaborate on a project, I'm like, wait a minute. What, what's our time sequence again? We need 80 minutes to get a movie done. Well, Run Lola Run took a 20-minute movie and did it, I guess, three and a half times. times. Yes. Uh, You know, so great. So at least we have a template that we can go follow. And then off this template, of course, he went on to do some, he, the director, you know, did some weird movies and whatever, one with Kate Blanchett or whatever, like uh, Heaven. Uh, But he did some weird movies. It wasn't like all of a sudden he came to America and he'd like started doing great movies. Probably the sense of, probably your interpretation, your, your reaction, Yoshi, is probably the one that was shared by a lot of people. Uh, but I remember this was like a little thumbnail, you know, in the in the art section of the paper. You're like, wow, this looks cool. It's it's frenetic. It's adrenalized. It's wow, this is great. And I remember being on board with this at the beginning because I <laughs> it's one of those movies where you are. You look at your watch and you go, she rounds the corner. He is about to get shot. Oh, where are we going from here? Oh, I've seen this device before. Got it. I'm on board with that. It's totally cool. So, um, yeah. But again, neutral, you know. That, but it's not going to be higher than a three for me. 
Aaron, I, I, we're gonna, Chris is going to take over here in a second, but I just I, I want to say by the end of this 15 minutes, I, I really want you to help me understand what I'm missing here. Because, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I know I recognize I'm sort of adopting a Stephen A. Smith type personality on the show and being confrontational. <laughs> but I really am being authentic and saying, like, you know, when you, when you praise the cartoons, I, don't, I, I have the opposite reaction to that. That montage and cartoons, those are cheap tricks to get us through to the next to the next scene, in my opinion, uh, I just I really I really hope that we don't ever allow a movie into our catalog about running again, because uh, because that was about an hour of running, bro. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it just had some. I, I guess maybe it was technical elements, but it also could be the catalog of movies that I've been opened up to. I've, I hear Paul explaining a lot of. Uh, like uh, connections, corresponding movies. Oh yeah, I saw where they got this from that. All right, da 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 da. And for me, it was it was the ride. Like I didn't have anything to compare it to. To me, that was like one of the greater thrillers that I've seen. Yeah. Where it has that ticking time bomb, play with uh, time, almost like a memento type of thing, but not memento at all. But um, you know, to me, I like I like watching Run Lola Run more than Memento in terms of a time-based movie. And um, there's another like technical thing I, I really wanted to highlight. You know that uh, scene where the ambulance, you know, stops before the glass? Yes. And then, and then it smashes through the glass. They, uh, they only did that take like a couple times. They smashed one glass and that was it. They actually only had two glasses to smash on set. And they saved the last one for the end of the movie. They just did like a fun smash of the glass. But I just thought that was really cool, like technical aspects, you know, where I watched this ambulance stop. I mean, it's so close to the glass, or they perceived it to be. Um, so I just think there were some incredible film achievements in here. I love the acting. I, I enjoyed the storyline. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't I don't see the distaste from you. <laughs> I thought you'd really like it. Dude. I know. I'm sorry, I know. man. I wanted to like it. Like I said, they opened up with one of the greatest quotes of all time. So I was in. I was into it. I, and I can appreciate this. And then we'll let Chris take over as the expert on German film. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> I do. I do really like the idea of toying with sort of will versus determinism. Like, are we? Are we determined? Is it cause and effect? Are we determined to 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 live our lives? Is it already predetermined, or do we have free will? And what minute and for me, like one of the cool things about the film, if I'm going to try really hard to make something really cool about the film, is her screaming. It seems to me like this every time she screamed, it was almost like the director like saying that our main our main hero heroine here. That's her alter. That's her using free will to escape the predetermined timeline she's stuck in. The screaming sort of breaks it up, and everybody sort of is like, "Whoa, what the fuck?" And then she kind of like, she she's exuding free will in those moments. I thought that was that was unique. Uh, that's a cool take on it. Yeah, it's like a superpower, if you will. Yeah, Chris, what, what yeah. what's what's going on with this film? Yeah. So as the expert on German film. Uh, <laughs> No, uh, I thought this this film, and it's kind of already been said by a lot of people, I think that this film is a great kind of student film that you show to someone and be like, hey, this is what you need to learn. And like, okay, 
I, I agree that the animated sequences are a cop out, and I'm I'm generally thinking that they didn't have enough money to finish shooting those scenes, so they just animated it. <laughs> uh, however, I do think this movie is ambitious, and it, yeah. it does lead to better movies. Yeah. So uh, to quote Aaron from El Topa, they could have done it better, and they did. It's called Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise. They do this. Oh, so much you're better. right. I was trying yeah. to think of where I saw this trope, and and you're right. They do a great job in that because. I'm usually not into those types of movies, and that movie's actually pretty entertaining. Yeah. I mean, it's ground, yeah, Groundhog Day. I mean, we, yeah. yeah it's, yes. That's why I love it. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So you take these, it, this film does so much with so little. And I, I agree that it's a great film. Of the films on this list, it does pale on comparison because I don't care about Manny. I don't care about Lola. And the fact that you're allowed to relive it makes their death and their misfortune not mean anything. The most sympathetic character in this entire film, I felt, was her father. Yeah, and 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 also the most room for performance and just yeah. like feeling human emotion. Right. Was was those scenes with her dad? That was the only time I felt like I was watching a movie. Yeah. The rest, the rest was a roller coaster. But I, I do think, I do think it deserves a place on this list, and I would recommend people watch it, given the fact that it's like, hey. This is this leads to better things. Like it's the same thing. I, why I love M so much. Like M sets the stage for much better things. You open up Pandora's box with making this film, and you allow people to steal from you. That's well said, Chris. Uh, Aaron, I love you so much, and you're going to have ample opportunity over the coming months to rip me apart. Uh, I know. I know. There's going to be. Oh more. no, we already disagreed on uh, that other the other El Topo film. Oh yeah, El Topo. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, so we're on opposites on that, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. We'll, we'll sync up again at some point. Um, well, Chris, <laughs> you, you ranked that four, so you have a film lower than that. I'm excited to see which one it is. Mm -hmm. I think I know which one it is. Uh, let's update uh -huh. the audience with our graph. <laughs> All right, let's update that old graph, which I haven't taken a look at because I was trying to focus on other things. All right, well, while you, uh, while you up, update it and then show us, and while you do that, um, Aaron, would you say that uh, Run Lola Runs, your favorite film of the entire our show's history of the three that you've ranked? Um, no, I don't think so. What you've had seen in the rain, the circus, and Run Lola Run? Yes. Yeah, I mean they're they're completely different pieces. It's hard to kind of throw them up against each other. I think Run Lola Run really got me off because as a like. Uh, it got you off? Yeah, it got me off. As a as a student, you know, yeah. like a, a future filmmaker, it was really exciting to see kind of thing come together. Um, I don't know. I just really appreciated it. And I thought a lot of the cuts, like just from behind the camera, kind of watching the, the things unfold and how they got their running scenes behind fences and all that kind of stuff. Like, I, I mean, I, I get really excited about that. I think it was shot really, really well. Um, so I, I see you tear it apart um, from a story standpoint, but um, technically, I don't know if you have more appreciation for what was pulled off there. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. I can, you know, I, I won't, I can't hate on that. Um, you know, I don't think I can make a film like that, but uh yeah, sure. Definitely technical prowess there. Yeah, so I don't know what gets my number one. I don't think it's Run Lola Run over the uh, the other ones. Chris, hit us with the graph. All right. <clears throat> Bam. Boom. 
Show me the graph. All right, let me zoom out here. So, Ron Lolo Run is actually tied with the wow. Court Jester right now. Uh, we have it at a number one, a number five, a number four. And oh, so three. so we've gotten Raren's top three, and we've gotten Paul's bottom three. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So it's all up for Paul, and it's all down for Aaron from here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Say goodnight. All right, let's move on, boys. That was fun. That was a healthy debate. That was fun. Anyone listening who's seen the films, feel free to show Chris your personal selections. And at the end of the show, we will, um, we if we have any sort of tiebreakers or if if we want to get another perspective, uh, we would be happy to see another opinion. Yeah. Good. All right. Let's figure out what we're gonna argue about next, shall we? And then there were two. And then there were two. So we can't hear the audio we do, right? Hmm? Like the title we... I don't know what you're asking. Uh, The intro videos? Yeah, we we should be able to hear that. Oh, okay. All right, Nazarene. Nazarene, 1959, Luis Buñuel, Mexico. Tome esta caridad y que Dios lo acompañe. All righty. Chris? Yes, let us... So, El Nazarene. Nazarene <laughs> is the story of... El Nazarene, shut up. Oh, Nazarene is the story of Father Nazario, a poor priest who lives destitute uh, in a neighborhood full of poor people. He lives a life that is very Christ-like. He takes in a prostitute after murdering one of a rival prostitutes who she threatens of stealing. He then goes on the run and becomes a kind of uh, hedge priest who then goes around performing miracles uh, that the populace de- deem him as a uh, miracle worker. This angers the priesthood who forced to exile him and bring him to justice. Beautiful. All right, let's show him, boys. Three, two, one. Nice. That's a three, five, two, two. Five, two, two. Very nice. Um, yeah, so Aaron, you had that ranked last. Um, I know that it was not the most entertaining film. Uh, what, what, how was your experience watching this? Um, you know, it's interesting. I put it at five. It, it kind of flipped back and forth. I actually flipped it back and forth a couple times with my uh, number four. Um, I enjoyed the film, actually. Like, I didn't hate it. There were actually, like, I would put this way higher on the list than other films we've seen um, in this show. 
it just didn't make it up there for me. It just felt, you know, a little dated, but I do love all these themes. I mean, this, this whole, I mean, we basically saw the Jesus Christ story live through this, this, uh, this pastor, you know, um, I thought it was a beautiful comparison how this man this is a man of God, you know, and uh, he helps the poor. He gives everything he has and he gives his entire fate to God and to the fate that that will bring him, you know, whatever it is. He, he's just uh, fully humble and fully ready to serve his community in any way he can. Um, so I thought that it was really beautiful to see this, this, parallel comparison to Jesus. And I thought the ending was very fascinating because he was kind of being taken to uh, almost his crucif uh, crucifixion, if you will. And he's going down this path. It's like he's arrested. He's going to this jail. It's like just kind of dooms. Like, what is, how did this story get here? Like, what's the happy ending here? And they stop at the uh, the cart at the end. And the woman basically says like, I've, in many words, God be with you and take this with you and give it to like, give on may, like maybe you be able to repay it or something in that matter manner. And um, I just thought that was the redeeming quality that you're being crucified right now, but God is still with you um, and you will be able to continue to give in his name. And um, I thought it was an interesting movie. It's just not, I don't know. It's it's not one I would come back to. Um, I enjoyed it, but yeah, I don't know. It just hit the bottom of my list. I think my uh, the topsy turvy acting with uh, what was his name? Uh, Jim. Jim Broadbent. Jim, yeah, Jim's acting that that took it that bumped this one down because Jim. I mean, that was just phenomenal, impeccable acting. So uh, this made number five. Very cool. Chris, hit us with what you got. Nazarene for me, as, as uh, Aaron has said already, was a prototypical Christ story, but in the most, I think, delectable way. Uh, Bunuel has this way of truly showing us, like, this man, this man should have been Christ. Like, honestly, he literally has the exact same structure of Christ. He doesn't want to be this person. He wants to live as a pauper. He wants to live amongst the people, literally giving him, like, literally giving them everything they have. Like, he even accepts a bribe from the the prototypical bosses of the town. And he's like, yeah, I'll just give it to the next guy who comes in and, and begs for money, for sure. What do I need money for? I, I get everything to God. And throughout the film, like, it, it, even, it even kind of broaches into Christianity, too, where where he goes and, and he heals that little girl. And he even says like, I can't do anything. I'm a fucking priest. Like get a scientist, get a doctor. And then magically she's healed. And it's like, yeah, because she was taking the medicine. And then they all divulge into like pagan and primal stuff of like some one, one has uh, goes into uh, what is it, speaking in tongues. One starts to worship the ground. He works on someone. She starts beating them with like, uh, I think it's sage. But it's like this guy is literal Christ and he literally has a crown at the end of thorns. Like how much more little can you Wait, get? Remind me, why does he have, how does he literally have a, he gets beaten 
in the it's, prison, he gets beaten by the toad. It's a symbol, oh. you know. He has that with like kind of like a bloodline. Yeah. In the bandage, it really looks like a Christ symbol, you yeah. know. Yeah, Paul, what do you think was meant by that final walk, which Chris displayed for us, excuse me, in the intro, where he's denying the pineapple, he denies it twice, and then eventually gives in and takes it? Paul? Paul, you're on mute. Yeah, you missed this very amazing answer that I had uh, because the, the microphone was off. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I have an answer either, but I'm wondering if anyone... I don't. I don't. I don't know if it's the crowing cock. I don't know if it's... Uh, because she's certainly not going to betray him. Um, but the it could be a moment where he realizes I have lived this life where I have... Um, I have rejected everything, and in this one moment, I will take something now because he's given away. I think, if I remember correctly, he has he has turned away everything up until that moment, and he realized maybe that is the that is God having faith in what he's done, and maybe for him it is a small reward uh, to a degree. But I think, uh, yeah, you know, do you, mean, for, do, you it, do you mean he's turned away things that people have tried to give him, or just turned away what? Yeah, that, that, you know, like Chris talked about the bribe and like, you know, trying you know, the, the, the town trying to, you know, uh, you know, uh, get him on, uh, on, on their side and, um, and then just giving the money away. And I thought, oh, wow. And then here comes a beggar and just, and he does, he does exactly that and he gives the money away. Uh, so, you know, those moments from, that's what, at least for me that I, you know, I think it's been said and just the Christ-like element is the thing that, that grabbed me. This was the mic drop moment for Buñuel. I mean, to, to film this in Mexico, uh, a deeply religious country to watch a man either knowingly adopt the path of Christ or accidentally adopt the path of Christ and get deep into his faith and to just practice, um, what he believes. And it was beautiful to watch, like, uh, because here's this uh, horrific society um, and how he's at least to some degree able to navigate that. And it is, you know, because you, Yoshi, are very good at, at finding those thematic similarities to any topical event. And um, I'm sure we're going to watch this play out in Hollywood. So I left this movie and I got deeper into, you know, the Christian liturgy. I was, I was like, wow, you know, oh yeah. Why do we say that? What is doxology and what is embolism? And why do we say these things? And did this reflect uh, the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke? And uh, were there elements of John and his interpretation of what was happening here? It was like, I was really I was deeply moved and I could understand why people have regarded this as one of his great works uh, because I was like, wow, a living, breathing Jesus Christ here, uh, an interpretation of the Bible that maybe stood for many, many years until Max Van Saito decided to become Jesus Christ. You're like, okay, totally cool. But this was really, really solid for me uh, set in a country that, that professes its religion. But again, what is it these people do are again, if you look at a, that's there's truly a caste system there. That will probably be around for long after we're all dead in a country like Mexico and a place, you know, all over the world where what are the rich, you know, those who is this plays out in our backyard. You walk into a Catholic church, you wonder like, oh, OK, what's 
okay, are you actually going to help the people outside or are we just going to put it in an envelope and hope it finds its way to them? What is it? Can you adopt Matthew 6, 1 in your life and just go do something and not broadcast it? Don't put it on Instagram. I don't need you to tweet it out. You don't have to send out an expansive note on Facebook. Just go and do it. And so I just, I, uh, I put this thing down and this is a movie to Aaron's point to his, or my counterpoint to his point. This is a movie I would revisit. I would revisit this movie again. I would look for Don Quixote elements. I would, you know, this is something that would be a, a, a movie of study for yeah. me. And it would further me into more of Buñuel's work. Yeah, very, very well said, Paul. Um, yeah, I, I gotta, I gotta just have a moment of appreciation for what we're all doing here, just being a part of the show. I love you guys. This is amazing because the thing about it is, I don't actually have, uh, I, I don't really have a strong fortitude when it comes to watching difficult films. It, it's actually not easy for me. And this show is forcing me to watch some things that otherwise I might, I don't know, give up on like half an hour in or something like that. Mm-hmm. And for this, <laughs> for this, uh, for this, for this film, for this film in particular, this film was ranked number five for me uh, after, after I watched all five films. It, it, now it's number three. During the broadcasting of this show, I think I should have put it at two. I'm 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 learning more and more about what it was really about. It wasn't the best film. It wasn't the best executed film. It wasn't the best acted film. It wasn't the most entertaining film. But the ideas behind it have probably stuck with me greater than any of the other films on the list. I think it was extremely timely. The more I think about it, the more timely it feels. Uh, I don't know if this is gonna be accurate. It might be a stretch, but the pineapple scene for me sort of goes into what the synopsis, my whole idea of what the film was about. To be or not to be is kind of going on a little bit here. Do I engage with the world or do I not? That's, a, that's like a philosophical debate that's kind of happening with Nazareth, especially taking on a Jesus Christ type archetype. Curiously, he doesn't preach his gospel or wish to convert anyone in, in particular to his ideology. You know, he's just sort of saying yes to things that come his way. But what was really interesting was it's I want to be careful with saying this because because it's, <laughs> it's, it's difficult to sort of to get to the crux of what I'm trying to get at here. But the irony of the whole thing was everything that he tried, everything that he got involved in, there was a very there was an undoing of the very thing he was trying to, to do. So there is this like parable of like the church is caught up in the very system it is seeking to subvert only to discover that it has se- it itself has been subverted. And so like the absurdity, the, the world is absurd. And by trying to redeem it, you are absurd. And, and, and he's, he's striving for like civility. But if you pay attention, every situation he gets involved in and he leaves chaos in its wake. He's trying to help everything he comes across. He's empathetic, right? But every, all that empathy just leads to more chaos because he's trying to fix an unfixable situation. So to share in the suffering of those affected by injustice is only to become a part of the injustice of the world. And his empathetic like impulse, if you will, is, is just leaving every situation worse than how it was when he got there. I disagree so, on that, though. Okay. Let me interject with, there was an interesting element of this that wherever he went, he was actually protected. 
in a sense. He was protected from the plague. Uh, he was protected from the police in the beginning of the film when they when she set his apartment or whatever, his little house on fire. Um, he was protected in the prison when he was about to get raped. Like the guy intervened and said, hey, no, stop. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a man of God. So throughout the film, yes, you could look at it as a downward spiral of chaos. But in every sequence and every circumstance, he was there almost as a guardian angel to help those in his present moment. Everything was like, you know, he helped whatever, heal the girl. He was there at the right time. Yes, his life continued to spiral, but he was there to give money when he needed to, or he was there to give wisdom, or there was just this weird guidance, but he was never given more than he could handle, which is like this intervention of God. What did he accomplish? Every, every, I feel like every scene, like, so, like it, when he, every scene was, was just something terrible happening. Well, he accomplished what it's like to be a true servant of God, to be a true servant of the will and the goodness of, of this all-powerful being. Um, you so know, do it's, you feel like he is after this movie? You know, like he walks away with the pineapple. That's why that scene, I feel like, I don't really understand that scene, but I feel like that scene is really what the movie's about. Like, why, why, where's that struggle with taking the pineapple? What is, what is this internal philosophical debate he's having? He, he, it seems to me like he's questioning all of his decisions up until that point. That's God. I think that's God winking at him. I think that's God saying, hey, hey, you have, you have been the servant. You have helped everyone else. You've given everything of you. All of you, I mean, look where you are. You have nothing, you have no material. You don't even have shoes on your feet. But here's me winking at you that I see you and here is something for you. Like it is a, it is an extension of God to show, hey, you're not dead. And here is a gift from somebody. This is what somebody did. This is what you did for everyone else. Now this is somebody intervening to help you back. So I think it's a wink from God. Sure, I can I can see that. I I I I'm not questioning. I want to make it clear. I'm not questioning his character or his empathetic path or his Jesus Christ, uh, you know, archetype at all. I think I'm not saying that he did anything wrong, but I'm wondering if when he takes that pineapple, if he doesn't think to himself like, well, what's going to happen to me now for taking this pineapple? Well, God's work. He's going to continue being a servant. Yeah, and to walk with God is to give up your life. Yeah, so so uh, so I, I understand your that perspective. But you and, and we'll wrap up right here. But one of the instances, the only instance I can recall that that give an example of what I was talking about was when he's working with those people. He's you know he's working with that that group, and then there's there's some kind of an idea where he's taking away a job from someone else by being there, and so he so he gives his job up and he walks away, and then they get into a fight and and there's death. But was, or was he protected from being shot? Was God protecting him out of that situation? And there we have the two different perspectives, Aaron, and and that's actually fascinating. And that's what a film should be, right? Yeah. That's what a film should be. Because that's what it caught for me in every circumstance where there was plague or somebody got shot or somebody, you know, there was death and destruction all around him. I saw the just being guided, literally effortlessly giving up everything, his complete will over anything and just being a full servant to the guidance of 
staying alive to be able to serve more, which was very interesting. And I, I, I love your perspective. And I'm just going to, and Chris, you can take it from here. I'm just going to stand by my opinion because from what I can see, uh, it, it seems like he might as well have just gone and, and, and lived alone somewhere because he didn't actually make any change. Um, and that's, that's the crux of the film that I'm having trouble understanding. But he affected those women and he affected Not really, they were insane. They, well, they became were insane. They became fanatics. They didn't have any pure motives. They were still just trying to use him to get by in life. But they were also kind of following his example. Like he gave them this purpose in life that was beyond their self-destructive needs of being a whore or being yeah. stealing yeah. or killing like, but wait, maybe there's more. Maybe we can help. They helped all the plagued victims in this town. And it was almost like the disciples of Jesus, where they just kind of gave up their lives and said, hey, let's follow Jesus because he seems like he knows what he's doing. And there's some kind of justification. There's some kind of uh, spiritual enlightenment through this journey of following Jesus. And that's- Correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't both those women just go back to doing what they were doing before? Didn't she become a whore again? And then the other one become whatever she was before? Yeah, Everyone did that guy. So they, so they flirted with the idea of, of being with God, but they didn't actually commit like, like he's- But isn't that society? Isn't that yes, the human yes, condition? That it's yes, like you get a taste of like helping somebody and then you're like, wait, resolution that you give up after three months. Yeah. There's something in it for me. What about me? And then like, uh, you know, the temptation comes back and you're like, I, I can't, I can't give up my shoes. I can't go into a plague ridden city without my savior there with me. Like it's, it's a, it's a deep matter of not being able to follow that once there's no one to follow. Yeah. Beautiful. That was great. That was, that was a great, Great argument. Um, Chris, I know we went over there. Go ahead. Uh, I just want to say one thing. Uh, I was reminded, as Aaron was talking about this, of two parables. Um, The parable of the man during a flood where uh, he says, uh, you know, there's a a flood coming and the flood comes and there's a person who knocks on his door and says, I'm I'm here to help you. Let's go. And he says, no, God is with me. Uh, second man uh, knocks on his door. It's like, hey, I'm a policeman. Like, we're here to evacuate. He goes, no, I'm good. God's here to help me. And then uh, a car crashes through his door and an inflatable raft goes up and he doesn't take it and he eventually drowns. And when he gets to heaven, he says to God, why didn't you save me? And he said, God says, I sent three people to save you. Oh, wow. So there's the conundrum right there. And that's the pineapple because is God trying to help me here or not i can't even tell anymore i'm confused wait for it where are pineapples grown in mexico where are pineapples grown in mexico i have no idea where pineapples are grown in mexico see that was see that was the fruit of the kings you know because that's the thing that was the thing i think columbus brought back and if you go into hawaii lore it was like the you know the pine wow you know the tall ships would show up at the pineapple tree boom you know blah 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 you know um yeah no so maybe that's God recognizing him as the king, like he's yeah. a part of that symbolism. Yeah, it could be. It could be a gift. Well, at least there's, I mean, I think that's a great accomplishment as a director is to, is to have these different perspectives from the audience and have these questions that are almost unanswerable. So uh, Nazarin, great film. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more from Luis Bunuel because apparently Paul would probably know more than any of us. Most of his films are very surrealist, uh, and this one seems to be uh, the least if, if, I, if I understand correctly, Chris, let's uh, let's take it home with Topsy Turvy. All right. Did you, have, did you have something to say? You texted me. Did you have something to say about the audience? 
Oh, this is uh, the largest audience we've ever had. All right. Hey. Thank you guys for tuning in. I Shout hope you're out to the yourself. audience. Uh, please speak All up right, if you have any opinions on the film. We'll talk about it at the end. Chris, go ahead. All right. We're launching right into Topsy Turvy. Topsy Turvy, 1999. Mike Lee, England. Your My voice. My voice. I've my voice. I've been trying too hard. The smaller the house, the greater the effort. I'm very cross with myself. I should know better. One's knocking one's pipes up. In a vain attempt to elicit a response from three colonial bishops, two elderly ladies, and the intoxicated costermonger. They're all roasting in their own lard like the Christmas goose. Yes, and the costermonger left at the interval. Did he? Mm. Ah, a man of infinite taste, clearly. You take a gargle my salt water, Dickie. Oh, no, thank you, dear chap. You put me in mind of my boyhood. Hmm. Good forgive me. Not at all. Hmm. Good boy. Oh, good boy. My dear boy. Chris, tell our cinemaniacs what this film was about. Wait, should we, should we all light up a cigarette? Like, we should just do it now. Yep. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a fine film. <laughs> Topsy Turvy tells the story of Gilbert and Sullivan, the famed lyricist and composer team that made such uh, great comedic musicals as Pirates of Penzance, the HMS Pinafore, and this, which is the feature of this film, The Mikado. The film chronicles the experience of Gilbert and Sullivan as they almost break up uh, through uh, creative differences, wanting to go each different way. Uh, they actually mend those differences and write and perform The Mikado. The Mikado. Mikado. Um, I will open up the conversation with this quote from director Mike Lay uh, speaking about the film, and then you guys can take it over, whoever wants to speak up. It's really interesting to study people taking such trivial work so profoundly seriously. <laughs> that was his oh. opinion on, on, on the piece that he made. Uh, so, so uh, oh, wait, did we show our rankings yet? No, we did not. No, we haven't. Okay. Oh. Three, well. two, one. Four, four, five, one. So, so Paul hates being John Malkovich, but unlike the rest of us, absolutely <laughs> adores this film. I like this film, don't get me wrong, but Paul, as the, uh, as the topsy-turvy king, please <laughs> share, like share, share with us what, uh, what about this film hit home for you. You know, it's funny because I was going to uh, lead with something else, but let me take uh, uh, oh, please, go. Aaron's point, okay. uh, which why he put it at four instead of five was Jim Broadbent's performance. And it's interesting because I, with Nazarene, what came out is some of the, you know, the, the kind of the narrative you have pushed uh, Yoshi about, you know, thematic elements and relation to society, relation to psychology. Um, and then I just kind of got back to the, you know, the film, the way I like to look at films, I like to look at performances. I actually, before I even hit play, um, I hated it. I was like two and a half hours. Oh god! Two hours and forty minutes. Whoa! That was. And I was like, I think as uh, you know. And then I said, Oh Jesus Christ! Please tell me this is going to be. 
And uh, tell me this is going to be a Lord of the Rings. Please, please. What's the action sequence? Am I going to see green screen, blue screen? I don't know what you were using back in 1990 or 2000, Mr. Lee. (laughs) Exactly. No, but this was uh, this was. Yeah, this was a Jim Broadbent masterclass. And for that, I was really conflicted. I said, you mean one person? It wasn't like just one person buoyed this film. This was. This was um, apart from a couple of scenes that I thought probably Mike Lee would go back and re-edit uh, 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 Sullivan's character. Um, I thought I was like, "Oh my God, this is so it's so good." And for that, I I couldn't. It was one or two, and I just said, "No, let me. I'm just going to make it one, and I'm going to step out." Uh, because what Mike and what what I think I really enjoyed about the movie was the incompleteness of it. I loved uh, the little narrative shifts. I loved um, the ending. I didn't quite know what was going on. I loved the fact that I didn't quite know what was going on. I didn't know if things were a live performance or actually a dress rehearsal. Um, and I loved the fact that he accomplished in two and a half hours what uh, you know it took whatever five seasons of Downton Abbey to cycle us through on the depiction of Victorian society. I was like, thank you, Mr. Lee. Thank you. Thank you. Because if I get one more client telling me you haven't watched Downton Abbey yet, I'm like, Victorian society, I can go to the wiki entry and I can get, I can get a full download there. And uh, there's some, a lot of fascinating things that happened stateside, you know, during the <clears throat> middle 1800s uh, as they relate to modern society today. But, but uh, let's not go there. Um, so no, I was, slowly sucked into this movie and i i think i struggled maybe a couple times to try to let go uh but because of the way he just sliced and diced this movie for me um it just had all those elements that uh, today would of course occupy three seasons on a streaming service and we'd all have to languish through the slow evolution of the Mikado over five episodes and then somebody would die or get, uh, you know, pancreatitis and be hospitalized forever. Um, or tuberculosis. Yeah. Tuberculosis. Right. Exactly. Right. Yes, exactly. So, uh, yeah, for the, for just the sheer incompleteness and the performance of Jim Broadbent, I gave it a one. You were already a Mike Lay fan going into this. You had not seen this film before, correct? Correct. And correct. where does it rank amongst your Mike Lay sort of, uh, knowledge it, it's it's it maybe two i think we're going to discuss uh um good what are we going to discuss uh, at some future date uh what's it I'm called blanking called, but uh, uh something time meantime 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 god yeah we're gonna want um, hopefully at some point we discuss meantime um yeah this is this is up at the top there because i think he took uh because what it was, it was that uh, movie in uh, the what art imitating life, life imitating art moment where we have actors who don't have naturally gifted singing voices, which he intentionally did. And so it renders those scenes where we think, what's happening here? And I forget my heavy set actor's name, but um, Timothy Spall. But I, I have, you know, I have cycled through a musical myself uh, with no formal singing skills. Uh, but you, as an actor who walks on stage fearless and says, okay, great, if I can just start this in sync with the orchestra, there's a good chance this can be delivered. And uh, having done a few, I, I could understand empathetically what was going on with the actors, despite the fact that obviously they were on a set and probably had the advantage of multiple takes and I'm doing it live. 
but um, this this ranks pretty high for me uh, in in the canon in the Mike Lee canon. Again, thank God for this show because an hour into this movie, I would have turned it off if if I didn't have to keep watching it because th- th- this first hour of this movie was fucking dreadful. But it was worth sticking through for me. Um, it was sneaky good. There was ripples of emotional undercurrents all throughout it, and the and the and the last you know hour of, of the film is was my my I had a huge smile on my face and I was very happy and and loving it. Um, the uh, the conundrums of the ever pervasive alcoholism and vanity and drug abuse and prostitution and the seamier underside of social commerce. I mean. It's so funny that a society can take themselves so seriously, yet they're just riddled with all these problems that, you know, like every actor was like backstage drinking and everyone's drunk. And yet it's like they're holding themselves so nobly. It's 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 such a weird hypocrisy. But that's uh, stage acting. <laughs> but it's community yeah, theater. I mean, in a yeah, nutshell, you know, it's just like, I just yeah. that's just one of the one of the ideas that stuck with me after watching it was like, oh, it's just so interesting how. You know, like art, especially, I guess, of the Victorian area is just so associated with not being sober. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that's kind of what stuck with me. One of the things that maybe Aaron could probably appreciate that, that I appreciated was kind of seeing the actors backstage um, having to adapt to performing for their first time in their lives without their, uh, what are those things called? Corsets. Corsets. Yeah. Corsets. Oh. I mean, not that you and I have ever wore a corset, but speak for yourself. That <laughs> have you worn one <laughs> for modeling? Probably, huh? You know, I've been around the modeling <laughs> scene. You'd be surprised at what I've worn. Um, what he hasn't worn. That that whole uh, like vanity uh, argument to try to wear the, the that that was stuff that stuck out for me. That was really hilarious. Yeah, that was. What, what, what stood out for you guys? Oh man, um, you know this this movie, like you said, Josh, was uh, just so painful. The first hour, this was actually I haven't done this that before, but I actually had to stop this movie in that first hour and come back to it because I was like, oh my god, like I, it, it just felt like it was so carried away. I, I had no idea what the movie was about. I was like, what is? I got to revisit this. So I stopped it, got some sleep, tried it the next day. <laughs> And I really sat through it and just paid attention. And like you said, the last hour was a banger. And I was like, yeah. you know, honestly, this movie could have been done, I think, in an hour less time. Yeah. You know, I know that's controversial because you get all this history. Right. But the first half just felt like, I get it. He's, you know, we got to establish this, the, these guys that have been doing this for 20 years and they're established in the community with this these great operas, but they can't do anything fresh. They can't do anything new. And it takes uh, Jim's character seeing this uh, Japanese performance kind of underground. And he's like, it's brilliance. You know, he sees it and he's like, oh my God, this hasn't been done. But this is just another slice of life that I can bring to my community. And he just kind of runs with it, which was beautiful. Um, Jim's performance was just I mean, impeccable. Uh, I, I think he saved the movie. <laughs> he is the reason this sorry, which a one's five for me. Jim Broadbent. He was, yeah, Gilbert. Gilbert. He was the one that uh, saw the Japanese. The writer. Play. Yeah, the writer. And I just thought his performance was just unbelievable. I mean, it was mesmerizing <laughs> to watch him. He just, it was just so rich. His character was just, you know, the yeah. Scrooge. But it was, he had love in there and he had, 
this passion to, to write something new, to do his life's work. Um, it, I found it very interesting. I looked on IMDb and Jim Broadbent's like number 13 on build cast, which I was like, what? Like, Who's why is he, mean? doesn't it mean like it goes in order of like how much is paid for the actor? That's an American thing. I'm not sure if that's a British thing as well. Okay. I didn't know if this, I don't know if he had a major career before this film. I was ask you guys as well, because I, I feel like, is this a breakout role for him? I mean, I know later on I recognized him. I was like, where do I know this guy from? And I, I looked it up. I was like, Oh my God, he was in Harry Potter. No He's wonder. I, Horace Slughorn. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, where, where did I see Cloud this Atlas? guy? And I love him. Cloud in Atlas. Potter. Cloud Atlas. I think, well, I I think yeah. so. Yeah. Iris. Iris is great. Brilliant. movie. So did he do big films before this one or was this a, a, a big coming out? Maybe not before, but definitely after he's he's been in some stuff. Yeah, because this was really inspirational. I mean, I I was just blown away at his character's arc, and I, I really I really just wanted the story to be about him. The other guys were okay, but I just I was like, man, this so, is this is his story. Just give it to him. Yeah, cut an hour out and give it to him. <laughs> so, Chris, let me ask you this: because Aaron, may, uh, we're kind of getting at the crux of what this film is now. Um, Chris, let me ask you this. It seems like the conundrum is artists repeating the same motifs. They're not really engineering anything creative because they're just using what's worked in the past and repeating and just being sneaky to cover up their tracks. Do they accomplish anything by making the Mikado or is it just more bullshit? It's more bullshit. It's just <laughs> fancy color bullshit. Uh, of just I wrote a different it as- race. Yeah, they literally whitewashed a, a Japanese production. It was like, look at this new thing. <laughs> like, I did not like this movie. I fell asleep during the middle of it. Uh, I had to go back and rewatch it, and I I disagree with all of you that it was worth my time. I think this this show or this movie would work better as a miniseries. Get it, give it a, a higher budget. Allow us to go in those streets of Victorian England and allow us to follow a character in episode. Because I didn't give a shit about any of them. Sullivan was a prick. Gilbert was this, like, very whitewashed British, you know, what I say goes. I'm not even going to fuck my wife. Like, go fuck yourself. Uh, The actors, like the one with the, I think it was opium, Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, an addict, Uh, didn't give a shit about him. Timothy Spall, when they cut his song, I was like, finally, some fucking character for development for this guy, because he's been shouting from the rooftops that he's miscast and he's misused, and finally gets kicked out of the door. And then they just turn it around and being like, we're all going to stand behind you. We need to get his song back. And it's like, I don't care. Actually, I thought that was one of the the best scenes was the whole team coming together to save him. I thought that was really nice. Yeah, but they should have made a character moment for Gilbert, where he finally realizes like, oh... I'm not always right because right. he literally he, he, uh, in the line reading that. scene. Yeah, in the line reading scene with the three actors, I cannot remember their names, but the opium addict, the fat guy, and the woman, uh, where he's like line reading them and they're giving it back to him, but he's like dishing it super right back. That that should have been like he should have snapped at one of them, and then at that point where they all come together and supporting of Timothy Spall's character, he should have he should have taken the moment and been like, "Wow, I I'm wrong." And then you have him watch the thing for the first time. You have him go and fuck his fucking lovely wife. Please just make love to that woman. She invented a whole stage show for you. 
Please. Yeah, poor poor woman of the Victorian age, man. Like they're just like That's it. So abused and ignored. It's like bullshit, man. Paul, what's your what's your reaction to Chris's contempt for this film? Well, I, I, that's the because um, you just said it, and I uh, was your um, see there. I thought that is what that was the identifiable moment for me for Gilbert. The character was his, let's say, temperance or compassion or understanding of the actors. He can have that interplay. It is something he is habituated to. So having that on, like, give it like exactly like you said, Chris, giving the line reading and then getting it back. Cause I've done that. Would you do it like this? And then I would literally mimic from the top. If I were in a shitty mood, you start right from the top and you just go, I would you like it like this, you know, boom. And I loved it. So you got to see him sort of like accordion in and out with his emotional state like he can deal with this and he doesn't take it personally it's like boop 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 but again then you get back to those you 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 start the what about the 15 or 20 minute mark of the movie he is seated bedside with his adorable wife you know and leslie manville's fucking smoking hot and uh you know so you're like okay great bang her and let's move this thing along and then i realize like that's never going to happen no and where his love is his love is in the hate that he has for this work. And you're like, Oh my God. That's, oh, wow. it's, and it's like, I go, got it. So he basically to the point made here, you've whitewashed yet another race. I get it. And it's like, but the fact that she, like to Chris's point, the love she expresses to him, like he gets a fleeting thought, like, Oh, because I've had those moments as a, just those personal moments where someone has suggested, Hey, would you like to go for a walk and we'll go see something. And then you think, Oh no, no, no. So she makes the suggestion. So we're going to go see this. And then he goes, sees the show and it changes him. And, but there's never that moment where he returns to Kitty and goes, Oh, thank you so much. That yeah. shaped my life. I'm like, I'm not expecting it at all because he's just going to get deeper, deeper internalized in his own little, however, whatever coping mechanism he has for opening night for the actual run of production, for the close of production, for the the uh, business interplay in between, where he has to like get going again and without using the topsy turvy template, come up with the magic potion again to create another show that will you know further his rich life. You're like, oh my god! So there's an interruption in it, which of course is the the essential purpose for this moment of a movie. Like this is the snapshot. This is the moment where he changes, where where Gilbert changes, but we. We get right to the end, and I'm waiting for it to finally happen. Could there be a baby in the offing? And it's not going to happen. Like, oh, thank you for taking my heart and stepping on it once again. I guess that's why I love the movie. Well, and he even says it, too. As she's describing her fantasy situation of her <laughs> husband actually sleeping with her. She literally, and he, he literally goes, and then there's like, oh, how do they get there? And it's like, she's like, oh, a magic carriage. He's like, oh, a magic carriage, topsy-turvy. And he, like, doesn't even look at her. Fucking look at your fucking wife. <laughs> yeah, I, I, can, I can understand Chris's hate for this film. Um, we have a bunch of narcissistic characters that have no redeeming storylines. And I can understand Paul's love for the film because yeah. maybe that's the point of the film, is just to show that all these people put so much, their whole lives are centered around this thing they hate. So why are you, like, why are you, this guy's dying. He's dying. And he's still, yeah. he's still going to, risk really dying sooner than later to make what a Japanese opera that's going to, I mean, 
maybe I don't know my history in this situation, but like, is this really a, that famous of a play? It's successful. I don't think it's that yeah. famous. I mean, there are other works. I mean, I, I couldn't even find a good version of the Mikado to put for the theme music of the <laughs> intro video. I had to go with uh, uh, Pirates of Penzance. Like, yeah. Well, what an interesting show, guys. We had Chris and Paul on complete opposite sides of the spectrum with Topsy Turvy and me and Aaron on complete opposite sides of the spectrum with Run, Roller, Run. So lots of divisiveness, lots of disagreeing in this episode. Um, I don't even really know who won. Chris, do you want to get that together? <laughs> Is it all finished? I oh, It's all finished, baby. Let's reveal this month's champion, shall we? We shall. Yes. So I'm going to... And anybody listening, if you, if you would like to... Uh, Tell us your favorite film of the month, or if you have your own list, please share with Chris, and, and we'll get that up, and, and, and it'll be very interesting to get a, a fifth opinion. So that's our ranking right now. Oh, look at that. We have a three-way wow. tie for three-way second. Tie. Three-way tie for second. Wow. Let's just give it to Run, Lola, Run, you know? Throw it a bone. Let's have a run-off run. Okay, so being John Malkovich is this month's champion, much to the dismay of Paul Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) Just to recap, our first month was what? Uh, April? Wings of Desire. Wings of Desire for April. We have Cries and Whispers for May. And now in June, we have being John John Malkovich. Malkovich. Do we have any comments from the Cinemaniacs? Uh, our Cinemaniacs uh, say that Court Jester should be n- number two, uh, hands down. Yeah. All right. Well, it looks That's like me fault. and the Cinemaniacs are in bed together because I agree. Yeah. The one Cinemaniac who answered is married. <laughs> Damn. All right. Uh, well, I guess, uh, yeah, how do we do? I guess we don't need a tiebreaker for second place. That's fine. No. Um, so why don't we vote for uh, who we feel um, truthfully, let's take a moment, think about it. Who in this episode moved us the most positively or negatively made us think a little bit differently about a film. Okay. So take your time. I have mine ready to go. Let me know yes, when you guys are ready. I've ready ran out go. of paper. <laughs> Shit. Wow. You can't write in the back of one. No. Yeah. I, I found some paper. Okay. Okay. All right. Three. Ladies and gentlemen. One. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, so uh, should, we just, should we just do what we did last month and you both get to pick a film? Sure. Sure. Okay. Um, well, while you guys think about that, let's... I have mine ready to go. I'm okay. ready to go. Okay. Chris, we'll start with you. Which is well, the first of five films that we'll be watching next month? Can I do something? Please. Can we pick the first three? Sure. And then, because yeah. if my film comes up, I have a backup. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good idea. So that's let's start our great draft. Idea. Let's Let start me go back draft. to the catalog. Great, great. Yeah, so let's, we'll pick the first three. All right. So let me get so this. So for anybody uh, listening and watching, well still, thanks for sticking with us. We're about to do our draft to reveal the five films we are watching for the month of July. All right. So, wow, there's a lot of films in there. <laughs> there's a lot. Can't see right. any of them. <laughs> this is exciting. 45 years. 45 years. One of the most concurrent films on the list. Mm. Quick synopsis of 45 years. 
Five years after retirees, Kate and Jeff Mercer had to cancel their 40th wedding anniversary because of a heart bypass surgery. The comfortably off, childless Norfolk couple are preparing to celebrate their 45th anniversary with dozens of friends at the Assembly House in Norwich. Their mourning is somewhat disturbed when Jeff opens a letter telling him that the body of Katya, his German lover in the early 1960s, has become visible in a melting glacier where she fell into a crevasse. Yikes. What a synopsis. Can we get an image, uh, Chris, to go along? Yes, we can. Give me Uh, just a moment. Talk about a twist. Right? Uh, My favorite yeah, this film's been on my radar for a while. It's one of Ari Aster's favorite films. So, um, uh, very curious to see. 45 years. Charlotte Rampling. Supremely intelligent and moving. Rampling and, <laughs> Rampling and Courtenay are superb. <laughs> Rampling. Right, let's go, go back to the name picker. <laughs> All right, the next film. The next film. All right, number two. Harry Potter. Harry. Forty-six years. Oh shit! Cul-de-sac. Cul-de-sac. Yeah, Polanski. Oh boy. Woo-hoo. Oh boy. Cul-de-sac. Oh boy. Oh boy. A little Polanski never hurt nobody except. Never. That's not true. Nobody. <laughs> nobody. When on the lamb, crook Richard and his injured partner in crime, Albie, seek shelter in a remote castle by the sea, they find themselves confronted by the owners, George, an eccentric and weak retiree, and his oversexed wife, Teresa. Richard seizes control of the castle, but as the criminals are pulled further into the isolated world of the strange couple, a volatile test of wits ensues. Oversexed. So excited for this film. I love Polanski films. Um, I have not seen this one. This is one of his earliest works. Paul, you've seen it, correct? I've seen it. I don't want to color you all. Two words, Donald (laughs) Donald Pleasance. (laughs) Amazing. I can't believe this one. I'm loving. Ooh, look at that. That's a cool poster. Sometimes there's nothing left uh, to do but laugh. Sign me up. So it seems like an absurdist piece. All right. So we have the name picker wheel back. The name picker wheel. This is the called third the wheel film. Doth actually. So now I'm thinking I don't want to <laughs> pick something that's thematically. This that's time. why. That's why I wanted to go first. So that's we didn't cool. have two weird films. That's weird. Ooh, fantastic, fantastic planet. Man. Nice. returns. What the fuck? <laughs> well, well, fantastic planet. I am excited for this. <laughs> The allegorical story about humans living on a strange planet dominated by giant humanoid aliens who consider them animals is based on the 1957 novel, I am so sorry, Ons Ilxerie by French writer Stéphane Wool. Wool. Um, yeah, Fantastic Planet, finally an animation film, gets into our month. Um, Sweet. The only animation film that we've had so far was... The first month where we had, um, what was it, guys? Help me out. Watership Down. Watership Down, that's right. Mm-hmm. So the second animation film to grace uh, Cinemania. I've seen it. Um, one of the only films in the catalog I've seen. And I saw it uh, relatively recently. So um, I'm excited. So that marks the three that were drafted. Um, Chris, Paul, who wants to go first? Well, I'm going oh, to I, let's see. do that. There we go. 
We've got, uh, all right, because we, let's see, the, the, the Wheel of Doth picked Cul-de-Sac. I w- I'm going to stay away from that movie and that movie. Let's uh, keep it light. I will go ahead and select Amelie. Amelie. I've been wanting to see this for, for, for years now. I am curious to see how it gets ranked. Have you seen it? Yes, I have. Okay, so there's two films that you've seen on the list. So, ah, uh, oh, fuck. Do I go with the list or do I? Well, let's get let's get the, let's get the Amelie uh, poster and. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Boxes. Amelie tells the story of a shy waitress played by Audrey Tautou. I probably fucked that up. Who decides to change the lives of those around her for the better while struggling with her own isolation? I remember. Have you, see, have you seen this, Aaron Amelie? I don't know. I won't know until I turn it on. Maybe in passing or a long time ago, but I could have sworn that you told me this movie was good. Uh, no, I, I don't not. remember it. I, I remember watching. Thinking, seeing I think I'm poster. thinking of the color blue or something like that that you told me about. Maybe blue is the warmest color. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't list that one either. Okay. I don't know. Amelie. <laughs> Amelie. 2001. 2001. And this is a comedy right. or a drama? Uh, dramedy. 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 Right, Chris, tell us what our fifth and final movie of the month oh, is. Shit. Actually, it says comedy romance. Comedy romance. Rom-com. So what? We have Fantastic Planet, Cul-de-Sac, 45 Years, and um, what else? Amelie. Heavy drama, Amelie. light comedy. Fuck. Black and white noir. Chris, I thought, and, I thought you were going to... And uh, Fantastic you. Planet, so... I, have, I, I know. I think I'm, I think I'm going to go with it. Yeah, go with uh, it. Uh, Yoshi and I actually talked about this before. I'm going to pick my own private Idaho. Oh, wow. Oh, baby. Let's there go. Uh, Gus Van Sant. Indie magic. Uh, it starts with fireworks. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Have you seen that, Paul? Oh, yeah. It's so, so you, good. You've seen three of the films. I know. Oh, but it's not my own private Idaho. I just remember I was like, that's a movie I remembered. Nice. Unlike BJM. I was like, and speaking of BJM. <laughs> Is there a blowjob in the movie? <laughs> a, little, a little Keanu Reeves uh, uh, River Phoenix blowjob? I hope no, so. No, it's I, I. You know, in it's funny. Uh, who are the two brothers that did Uncut Gems? Safety uh, brothers. Yeah. Oh my God! So I don't know if the guy. Well, you'll we'll have to figure it out if the guy at the beginning is an actor. Somebody pulled off the street. He. Leave it. All right. Are we ready for the yep. synopsis? The synopsis is two best friends living on the streets of Portland, Oregon, as hustlers embark on a journey of self-discovery and find the relationship stumbling upon the way. Uh, yep. That was just in my own private eye. Image. Image. Yep, I got it. Uh, Aaron. Yo. Have you ever seen River Phoenix before? No. What a shame. What Wait, a oh, shame. Uh, uh, in other things? We're not um, seeing the poster, Chris. Oh, I showed it. No, River sorry. Phoenix. Let me take a look at his uh, discography. He's Joaquin Phoenix's older brother, or was. Yeah, no, I know. He's. Uh, I'm trying to look at his, his movie list. Here's the poster, Aaron. Yeah. And you can also save on a Samsung Galaxy A51. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited, man. I've only seen one River Phoenix movie, and uh, 
he was great in it. So I'm excited to see what else he's got. Yeah, no, I haven't seen him in anything. So just to recap, we have 45 Years, which is a drama in 2015, Cul-de-Sac, a thriller dark comedy from 1966, Fantastic Planet, an animation sci-fi from 1973, Amelie, a rom-com from 2001, and My Own Private Idaho uh, is a drama from when? Uh, 1995. 1995. Yeah. So this is- Oh, I'm sorry. 1991. My bad. This is our most modern uh, month yet, I think, altogether. Um, we have. I yep. would like to point out that being John Malkovich was the first American film to win Cinemania. Oh, because that. Germany and wow. Sweden. Germany, Sweden, and the U.S. Let's go, baby! America's hey. back. America's <laughs> back. Um, Make America great again! Oh, oh God! <laughs> Cancelled. <laughs> Now, hey, I got a one-way ticket to Tulsa. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, do we uh, have any final uh, Cinemaniac comments or anything that we should... Uh... Uh, there are a couple film rec- recommendations. Okay. Uh, Let's hear them. Uh, a, 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 I can't pronounce this. It's Breathless in English. Ooh. Oh, uh, um, John... Uh, John... Uh, what's his name? John What's his name? Jean Luc Godard. That's the Gene Sebring, right? The, no, not Gene Sebring. She wasn't in Breathless. Uh, Do you guys know this movie? Yes. I thought it was Gene Sebring's movie. It's not. I don't. Oh, no, it's Godard's first movie. Yeah. Oh. It's got the, uh, uh, I believe. Oh, it is Gene Sebring. Yeah. We're, okay. Gene Sebring. I'm sorry. Um, no, Gene Sebring. Yeah. Well, Paul, why don't you tell us about it? <laughs> oh, let's see. Oh, I, I, I don't. I've never seen it. Um, but it made her a star in France. Uh, and it was, and I believe uh, Breathless was the f- kind of the first French New Wave film, correct? Yeah. I want to say there was one maybe before that. Uh, that was like 60 or 61 for Breathless. 60. 60, okay. So, um, well, we watched 400 Blows, um, and I've heard good things about Breathless as well. So, you know what? Whoever said that, it's in the catalog. It's in the catalog. It's in the catalog for next month. I have the synopsis if you want me to read it. Let's hear it. A small-time thief steals a car and impulsively murders a motorcycle policeman. Wanted by the authorities, he reunites with the hip American journalism student and attempts to persuade her to run away with him to Italy. Mm -hmm. Uh, That film. Who offered that movie? That was Iron on Tap. Iron on Tap. Thank you for the recommendation. It could potentially get drafted next month. Uh, Who else had a recommendation? Uh, that is it. Okay. Unfortunately. You said a couple, so uh, check well, I, I Well, I misread it because he gave me the the uh, title in French and then the title in English. Guys, that was a fun episode. Plenty of disputes and disagreements. Uh-huh. Uh, absolutely our most divisive one yet. Um, I'm really excited for next month's films, truly. Um, it's I think it's a great batch of films. Um, any last comments from the gang i'm excited to watch these films yeah me too yeah it's gonna be great pleasure as always boys we'll see you in a month thank you